this afternoon we found a roll of $100 bills tightly wound up in a rubber band under one of the chairs. <laughs> well, if it is you, see me after the meeting because I do want to return the rubber band to the rightful owner. So, I'll be giving the rubber band back to you. I want to say a prayer. Lord, um, I'm asking that you would feel that which I have to share with your people tonight, with your power, your life, your anointing. I ask that you would soften all of our hearts that you would open all of our hearts wide. That you would um, open our eyes and our ears. The eyes that are not physical, the ears that are not seeable. That by your blessed Holy Spirit, you would open yourself, your heartbeat, your passion, <laughs> To us, and you would give us a revelation of your eternal timeless purpose, a revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of his glory. But we would leave here changed. Our minds would be changed. Our patterns of thinking about your mission in the earth would be different that we would have a new center, a new apprehension of what you are after concerning the church, that you would just blow to bits all of the junk that we have heard that doesn't map and doesn't match that which beats in your own heart. You just wipe it all off the table and give us a sighting sighting of things of heaven things that you had deep within you from eternity past and that Lord out of this meeting you would grab hold of the hearts of many people here that they would have a new direction a new vision and it would not die within them but you would bring others into their life that would share the same vision the same direction in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Before we plunge in and continue what I had begun this morning, I want to make a few statements. Organic church life is not about a new form of church. It's not about a new method of church. It's not about a new strategy of how to do church. It's about a new vision. It's about a new mindset. It's about a new foundation. And it's about a totally new basis upon which to meet. And, you know, I, I understand that there are some of you in this room who said, you know, I come to get the method. Give me the method. And if we started there, and there's so many conferences that start there and end there, 
you would have nothing. Nothing. Just another little group that meets in a house that will not turn the world upside down. That will not meet the beating heart of God. Brothers and sisters, we need a revelation from heaven that will blow our minds and change our hearts and cause us to say there is one thing that God is after and I'm giving my whole life to it. That is the basis of organic church life. And if you have something different, if you have something else, then you have something that is wood, hay, and stubble and it will burn up very quickly. God's eternal purpose is to have a home, a house for himself, a place in which he can call his own, a place in which he can rest, find rest, a place where he's totally welcome, a place where he is hid, a place through which he can express his image in the earth and exercise his authority in the earth and we're not talking about a physical place but we're talking about a home for your Lord when Jesus Christ was on this earth he said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head what is an organic church? it is a place in which Jesus Christ can lay his head place where he can find home a place where he can call his own a place where he feels totally completely exclusively welcome and where he calls the shots where he truly is head not just in rhetoric but in reality the modern house church simple church movement in my judgment and in the judgment of the brothers who have been speaking to you is driven by the same American consumerism that drives the typical institutional church. The burning passion is not God's eternal purpose. The burning passion is, how does this group meet my needs? And brothers and sisters, organic church life will never work if that's in the heart of the people who make it up. It will disintegrate, or it will turn into a scaled down version of the institutional church and we've got a lot of that on the planet today in our judgment the modern simple church movement house church movement is for the most part shallow insipid and anemic it's not going to turn the world upside down in fact in my experience most of the house churches that I have seen if I had to choose between being part of them and joining an institutional church and those were the only two choices I had, I would run to the institutional church. There is nothing magical about meeting in a home. The home is not our passion. The living room is not what God's excited about. <laughs> the modern house church, simple church movement as a whole does not understand God's eternal purpose. If you talk to most Christians and say, why do you meet in a home? You will get a dozen different answers, but none of it will sound like anything you heard this morning. None of it. And if I can get across to you that what I have shared this morning and what I will share tonight has everything to do, everything to do with the church of the living God, then I will have succeeded.
But you know what? It's going to take a revelation of God to show that to you. Because without the Holy Spirit revealing that and, and anointing my lips and my words to bring that across, you will leave here saying, show us how to do church. You understand? There will be no registration, no connection. Thus my prayer. Another point, the word organic, and this really irks me, but I think it makes Milt even more upset than it does me. The word organic has been co-opted and hijacked to mean something other than that which is done in the energy of God's own life. When we say organic church, we are saying that the church of Jesus Christ is an organism, not an institution. And it has an expression that comes out of the life of God. I define organic church this way. It's a group of believers that are learning how to live by divine life together. Or to put it in terms of the story you heard this morning, it's a group of believers that are learning how to eat from the tree of life and drink from the flowing river and out of it comes gold, pearl, and precious stone deposited into those believers to be the house of God on the earth. So there's a definition of organic church to remember. Most groups that call themselves organic are not. So that's my heart, that's my passion. Right or wrong, you may disagree with me, but this is where I'm at. Now, I didn't have time to explain to you the three counterfeit cities. Actually, there's six in all, but there are three big ones. One of them really isn't a city, it's, and it's not even a counterfeit, it's just necessary. But here are the two cities and the one other destination. Egypt. God's people were in Egypt for 400 years. He brought them out with a mighty hand. Egypt represents the world system. And... More specifically, it represents the materialism of this world, the greed of this world, the name and fame of this world. When you have an individual Christian who is consumed with making money, getting a better house, a better car, putting their kids to college, living the successful American life, and that's front and center of your life, then that person is living in Egypt. Plain and simple. And when you live in Egypt, you're building bricks for the wrong master. God will not build his house in Egypt. There will come a decision in your life where you can go the way of the Lord's house or stay in your Egyptian lifestyle. <laughs> and you'll know when that time comes and you're going to move in one direction or the other. One of the reasons why God's house is not being built today is because many of his people are content to live in Egypt. That's the main thing that they live for, the American dream and uh, so forth. The other city is Babylon, and we talked about that this morning. It's organized religion, and God will not build his house in Babylon. His people in Babylon love him, most of them do, and he loves them. But he will always call his people out of Babylon who want his highest and his fullest. Does it make you special if you leave Babylon? Does it make you better than other Christians? And there's always the danger that those who leave Babylon tend to feel that they're more special than others and they become elitist in their attitude. And uh, let me tell you something, the Lord will have nothing to do with that. 
you will turn into a very tiny, tiny, exclusive group of believers that are just a backwater in the Christian faith. Nobody will notice you and you will notice nobody else. And I have just described a number of movements outside the religious system in that sentence. And then there's the wilderness. And the wilderness is necessary. You have to go through the wilderness to leave Egypt to get to Canaan. And you've got to go through the wilderness to leave Babylon to get to Canaan. The wilderness is necessary. But God will eventually make a way out. He will give you a way out. And it's going to cost something. And many Christians die in the wilderness because they're not willing to pay the price to get out and to go to Canaan. Now, I'm speaking spiritually here, and folks, this is how the New Testament writers look back at the Old Testament. They see it as a spiritual picture. Pictures, all revealing Christ and the church. And so there's great precedence here. God will not build His house in Egypt. He will not build His house in Babylon. If you want to know more about those two cities in the wilderness, read a book entitled... From eternity to here. There's a chapter for each. With that in mind, I want to continue the sweeping saga of God's story, the drama of his building a house for himself. And the curtain opens now in the New Testament, and we come to the Gospel of John. And I mention the Gospel of John because chronologically, the New Testament does not begin with the Gospel of Matthew. Chronologically, it begins with the Gospel of John. You understand? And John, chapters 1 and 2, are the new Genesis. Remember I said God continues to repeat the story over and over again in the Old Testament? Well, He does it in the New Testament. <laughs> he not only repeats it, He consummates it. The Old Testament is God's picture book. And when we open up the Gospel of John, God's done with pictures. He's through with them. Now we come to the reality. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. And I hope I'm going to give you a picture of Jesus Christ that may be a little bit bigger, a little bit higher, a little bit deeper, a little bit richer than just He's the Savior that died for my sins. John 1 and 2 have striking similarity to Genesis 1 and 2. How does John 1 open? What are the opening words? In the beginning. Boom. In the beginning, Genesis 1. And the language of John 1 and 2 reminds us of the seven days of creation. If you look at John 1 and 2 carefully, you'll find this phrase, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. On one day, John the Baptist appears as a voice crying in the wilderness. And in Genesis 1, the earth is created formless and void like a wilderness. And the Hebrew word for without form in Genesis 1 is the same Hebrew word for wilderness all throughout the Old Testament. But that's not all. On another day, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And remember when we opened up John 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of creation, over the new creation. So in Genesis, the Spirit is hovering over the new creation. And in John 1, 
the Spirit is hovering over the new creation. Jesus is presented as the new Adam. What's his favorite title? Son of Man. That means literally Son of Adam. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the second man, the last Adam. And in Romans 5, Paul says that Adam was a figure, a shadow of the one who was to come. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He came to do what Adam failed to do. Consider the the commission that God gave to Adam. Bear my image and rule the earth. Well, Jesus of Nazareth certainly bore the image of God. John says, No man has seen God at any time, but the Son, He has expressed Him. Colossians says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus Himself said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He bears the image of God. But not only that, but He exercises dominion over the earth and over the creeping things. He's casting out demons out of people. He has power over nature. He can calm the storm. He rules the earth. He is a king. He is a priest. He is the new Adam. But that's not all. He's also the new Israel. He is the new Israel. He is the new Jacob. He selects 12 disciples. Why 12? Because Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at Jacob's well at noon. And the whole story is a replay of Jacob meeting his wife at a well at noon. He is the new Jacob. And if you look at the story very carefully, it's a mind blower because Jesus is replaying the story of Jacob. He is the greater Jacob. And in from eternity to here, I tell the story. Israel was in the wilderness of testing for how long? Forty years. Jesus Christ is in the wilderness of testing for 40 days. Why 40 days? It's an echo of the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. But that's not all. For each temptation, Jesus quotes Moses. And he quotes what Moses said to Israel when they failed God in the wilderness. The only difference is Jesus succeeded in each temptation. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, Moses says to Israel, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus repeats that in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus repeats that in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 6.13, Moses said, You shall worship the Lord and serve Him only. He says that to Israel. In the wilderness, Jesus repeats that. He is the new Adam. He is the new Israel. He faced the same temptations in the wilderness that Israel did, but by contrast, he overcame Adam failed in the Garden of Eden and was cast out. Israel failed in the wilderness and in the land of Canaan and they were cast out. But where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. The Old Testament prophecies tell us clearly that the Messiah would be the new Israel. And Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. 
He's talking about Israel. Right? Read Matthew. He quotes him, Out of Egypt have I called my son. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And in Isaiah 49.3, the Messiah is called my servant Israel. And Paul says in Galatians that Jesus of Nazareth is the seed of Abraham. He is the new Israel. Now here is what I want to tell you beyond all that. That with the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, the house of God, God's quest for a home, finds fulfillment. Again, we're in John 1 and 2. Listen to John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the word in the Greek, His dwelling, literally means tabernacled among us. He is the reality of the tabernacle of Moses. And then John goes on to say, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen His glory. This corresponds to the glory that fell on the tabernacle, showing forth by a manifestation, supernatural manifestation, that God indeed dwelt in this house. And then in John 1.51, Jesus finds Nathanael and He says to Nathanael, You shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that remind you of? That's Jacob's stairway to heaven. Remember the angels were going up and down? He was saying, I am that stairway. In me, heaven and earth join together. In me, I intersect God's space and man's space. I am the house of God. I'm the real Bethel. Wow. But that's not all. In John chapter 2, with the temple of Solomon, the rebuilt temple, standing right beside him, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the commentator says, he was not speaking of the physical temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Here he's not only saying in John, I'm the tabernacle, but I'm also the temple. The triune God from eternity past has been looking for a home. And the Godhead found it in the man Jesus. For Colossians says, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. Well, isn't that wonderful? Well, that's not all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is not only the temple, but He's also the garden. John 7.37 If any man is thirsty, let him drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And some scholars point out that when he says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, the his belly is referring to Christ himself. If that's true, then he's the real river because there was a river that flowed out of Eden. He is the real garden. But that's not all. He is also the tree of life. Listen to his words. I am the vine tree. He who eats me shall live by me. He says this in John 6.57. As the Father has sent me and I live by the Father, he that eats me, he's the tree of life, shall live by me. 
He's the river. He's the tree. He's the garden. See, He's more than your Savior. He is the house of the living God. He is the king. He is the priest. He's the garden. He's the tree. He's the river. All of those things were pictures. But we have a little problem. Because remember when we looked at the commission that God gave to Adam, it was threefold. It was bear my image, exercise my authority, and what was the other one? Be fruitful and multiply. Now we know that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the exercising of God's authority and the bearing of his image, but he never married. He never married. Despite what the last temptation of Christ has proposed, or Dan Brown or whatever, Da Vinci Code, thank you. Despite what the Da Vinci Code has said, he never married. But listen to another statement that's recorded by John. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will multiply. It will produce many grains. Do you understand the incredible power of that statement? Do you understand what he's saying there? He's talking about himself. He's the real grain of wheat. You pick up a grain of wheat, that's just a picture. God put it on the planet to reveal his son. And brothers and sisters, outside the city of Jerusalem, on one dark, horrendous day, the real grain of wheat was put into the ground, and it died. But three days later, <laughs> it multiplied. And Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the dead, and he became a life giving spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And the one grain multiplied and became many grains. The only begotten Son became the firstborn among many brethren. I'm going to repeat that. The only begotten Son became the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The grain of wheat multiplied, but that's not all. When Jesus rose again from the dead, where was he seen? Where did he rise again? In a garden. Do not think that that's an accident. <laughs> the Garden of Eden was being restored in the resurrection. And then in John 20, He breathes into 11 men. And they are now the new creation. And He gives them this word, Proclaim My forgiveness. Whomever you will forgive, My Father will forgive. In the Old Testament, it was the temple that had the power to forgive sin. He was saying, you now, you now are the temple of God on earth. And what's even more fascinating about that, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the grains of wheat from the harvest were crushed, put into an oven, and baked. And out of that oven came a loaf of bread. 
all those grains lost their individualism, independence, and they became blended together to make one loaf. And as that loaf was being brought out of the oven, a wind from the heavenly realm rushed into an upper room where 120 disciples of Jesus were standing. And the heavenly dove, the Spirit of God who had brewed over the new creation in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God who had dwelt upon Jesus of Nazareth at His baptism before He went into the wilderness for 40 days, that same Spirit fell on and came into 120 grains of wheat. And at that moment, those grains became one loaf. But something else happened. Tongues of fire (laughs) fell upon their heads. And they began to speak in another language. And they understood one another and they became one. And brothers and sisters, what God was saying is that this was the real temple. This 120 believers was the real temple. For just as the fire fell from heaven on the temple of Solomon and on the tabernacle of Moses, tongues of fire fell on their heads. And God was saying, this is my temple. And they spoke in another language, but it didn't divide them as it did in Babel. It united them. He was reversing what happened in Babel. He's retelling the story. See that? But this is the reality. And you thought reading your Bible was boring. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, Christ, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. To them. And God said in Genesis 1, Let them bear my image. Let them rule the earth. He's after a corporate expression. The temple of God is made of many living stones that have been joined together. This new temple is not made with hands, and the scripture has a lot to say about that. Acts 17.24, God does not live in temples made by hands. Acts 7.48, Stephen says, Howbeit the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. Hebrews chapter 8, The true tabernacle of the Lord is pitched by God and not man. This new temple is not made with hands. Now what I want to do at this point is I want us to look at three passages in the New Testament. Three passages in the New Testament. Now we can develop this all throughout the epistles. And by the way, I've just given you a summary of the Gospels (laughs) and Acts. Now let's look at the epistles. I want to look at three texts and I want you to read them with me. We're going to read them in light of the story you heard this morning and uh, just a few minutes ago. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 17. And we're not going to read every single passage. We're going to jump around. But I want you to see this because what I hope will happen is light bulbs will go on as you read this passage and you will see it in a new light given what you heard this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I want you to imagine the church in Corinth. It's mostly made up of Gentiles. There are a few Jews there. There's only about 40 people in this church. 
And we know this based upon the fact that they met in a home when the whole church came together. We know this from the letter of 1 Corinthians. They met in the home of Gaius. And in that day, if you were pretty wealthy, you can fit 40 people in a home, 50 max. And the scripture clearly says, Paul says in the letter, when the whole church comes together. So we're looking at about 40 people in a home. Okay, so think about that when we read this. Verse 6. I planted the seed. I planted. What do you do in a garden? You plant. You plant seeds. Apollos watered, but God made it grow. What does a garden do? It grows. Verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Now, does anybody in the room have an amplified version of the Bible? You do? What, would you read verse 9? For we are fellow workmen, joint promoters, laborers together with and for God. You are God's garden and vineyard. That's it. God's garden. You are God's garden. This group of 40 believers in Corinth is the reality of the Garden of Eden. And Paul planted them. But they're not just the garden, they're also God's building. Remember, the rabbis and the Hebrews said that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. It was the house of God. It was really the building materials. Okay, look at verse 11. By the way, thank you, sister, for reading that. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using... Well, what do you know? Gold, silver, precious stones. What was the temple of God made up of? Gold, silver, precious stones. Are you seeing this? He didn't just make this up. He is thinking about the reality of God's house. Wood, hay, or straw. Don't you know that you... The you is plural in the Greek. So it should be all. Don't you know that y'all, yourselves, are God's temple. And that God's Spirit lives in you. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. A true church... An authentic ecclesia, an organic church. And by the way, the only churches in the New Testament were organic. Listen to me. It is the gateway of heaven and earth. It connects the eternal realm and the earthly realm. God actually, literally, physically lives in those people corporately. So much so that if they are meeting together properly and an unbeliever comes into the room they will say God is in the midst of this people I just quoted 1 Corinthians 14 now brothers and sisters listen to me that's not theory I'll tell you something I have been part of many many house churches but I've also been part of a few organic expressions of the church and I have watched non-Christians come into a room full of believers who knew that they were the house of the living God. And all of them were functioning. All of them were sharing this glorious Christ. All of them were eating from the real tree of life. 
and drinking from the real river of life. And they were sharing out of the abundance of this Christ. It wasn't a one man speaking to an audience. It was a church meeting. And by the way, as Gary said, these are not church meetings. We're hoping to equip you to have church meetings. They were having a meeting where the living stones were functioning. And that unbeliever, I've seen it several times. One time it happened at the end of the meeting. One time it happened right in the middle of the meeting. Remember one guy fell in the middle of the floor. Fell down on his knees and said, God is with you. I have seen him. I want the Lord. Another one, this was a a girl uh, who was into the gothic stuff back in the the 90s. And um, at the end of the meeting she said, I don't understand what I just saw. I can't explain it. But God lives here and I want Him. Brothers and sisters, organic church life is the gateway between heaven and earth. It's where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm intersect. God walks in the midst of the garden. He walks in the midst of the temple. This is what He was saying to Corinth. You are God's temple. God lives here. This is where He lives. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians is a circuit letter written to a number of churches in Asia Minor. It was not written just to the church in Ephesus. Verse 19, Ephesians 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Verse 20. Having been built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together. And I'd like you to circle the words being fitted together, whatever your translation says. Is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice the word growing. That's garden imagery. But it's growing into a building. (laughs) A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. And I would like you to circle the words built together. Very important. In whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In the temple of Solomon, when it was built, the stonecutters would go out into Solomon's quarry and collect the stones. And then they would do their work of cutting and chiseling and sanding. And they would take the stones and they would properly fit them together to make up the temple, to make up the house of God. The temple of Solomon was not held together by mortar. There was no glue. It was held together by friction. The stones were cut and chiseled and sanded just right so that each stone could be built together with the other stones to make up God's dwelling place. Now listen to me, saints. The cutting and the chiseling and the sanding and the grinding is the work of the cross on living stones so that they can be built together to form the Lord's house. It is the work of the cross, which is death to self. And I'm going to make a statement here, and you can quote it if you like. 
I make it everywhere I go because it is one of the missing ingredients in this whole business of having authentic church life, authentic body life. And here's the statement. Organic church life doesn't work. Never has worked. Will never work. Unless you embrace the cross. And you will find it if you try to meet with another group of believers. You will find it. You will find the cross there in spades. Organic church life is a railroad track to the cross. And what God's wanting to do is destroy you. You, yourself, nature, the flesh. He's out to destroy everything that's not Christ because the house of God is built with Christ, by Christ. The house of God is Christ. And Christ is in you. And everything that's not Christ, He will, by the transforming of His Holy Spirit, the stonecutter Himself, will cut and chisel and grind and the instrument of that cross will be your other brothers and sisters. And it's at this point where you have a decision. Am I going to lay down on the altar and die? Am I going to lose my life? I'm using Jesus' words. He said, if any man follow me, let him take up his cross and lose his life. Cross means loss. It means losing your opinion. Losing the way you think things should be done. Losing your need to be seen and noticed and honored and appreciated and everything else. Brothers and sisters, you will know the cross in organic church life, but this is how God gets His house. Because the living stones have to be rightly fitted together to be His dwelling. You understand? The house of God is filled with glory and gore. I've described it this way since the 80's it is a wedding of glory and gore and you hear a lot of people screaming because they're dragging crosses around (laughs) the gateway to life is death and so when Paul is talking about being built together this is what he has in mind this is how God gets his house alright let's look at the last one in um, 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2. You know that uh, Peter's real name was Simon. You know that Jesus named him Peter. Any idea what Peter means? It means a stone. Yeah. He's a little stone. It's not without significance. In verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, As you come to him... The living stone. That's Christ. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. He just called Jesus Christ a living stone, but also a precious stone. You also like living stones. Living stones. Jacob pouring oil on a rock making it a living stone are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ verse 9 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood what's a royal priesthood? it's a kingdom of priests what was Adam? a king and a priest what was the new Adam? Israel to be 
a kingdom of priests. And now he says to the churches that he's writing to in Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? What is your purpose? That you may declare. Now that word declare in the Greek means show forth. Or I like manifest. That you would show forth, that you would manifest, proclaim the praises. And the word there, praises, means virtues, excellencies, glories. You would manifest the glories of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. What's he saying here? He's saying that the churches are made up of living stones that are built together to be God's house and the purpose is to manifest the glories and the riches of who God is, the riches of Christ. To manifest His image, to exercise His rule. Living stones built together. So brothers and sisters, now we see the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. Now we see the fulfillment of Haggai, who said, the latter house shall be greater than the former house. It is the church of the living God as God conceived it to be. It is the body of Christ as God conceived it to be. And all throughout Scripture you see this this exhortation to bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. Well, a tree doesn't bear fruit by effort. It's just locked into the source of life and fruit comes out automatically. The way to bear fruit is eat from the tree and drink from the river together and fruit will automatically produce out of you. And what is the bearing of fruit? It's an image of the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. And the fruit is always Christ. He is the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, everything that's mentioned in that text in Galatians, is Christ. Now we come to the finale, Revelation 21 and 22. And I just want to read a few passages. You don't have to look here. Just listen. I'm going to go through this quickly. Remember, God called Adam to be a king and priest. Israel the same in Exodus. Well, listen to Revelation 1.6. We have these words. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10 And he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we have the consummation, the final product of the house of God. All the building materials in Genesis 1 and 2 have been put together to create this glorious dwelling place, this building, the new Jerusalem. And where does it come? Out of heaven. And where does it go? To the earth. And what's it made of? Gold, pearl, and precious stone. And what does it have in it? A certain tree and a certain river. And in the foundation, you have the twelve apostles. Peter, who was Simon, was a stone. Jesus Christ made him a stone, a living stone. But boy, he had a lot of clay in him. But in the end, clay has been transformed into precious stones. And he is part of the building blocks of the house of God. He's on the foundation. And that's what God is doing with you and me if we get into his house. He's transforming clay into precious stone. This city is a garden and it's a temple together. It's 1,500 miles square. It's a perfect cube. And it's huge, 1,500 miles. 
approximately. Now, can you think of anything in the Old Testament that was a perfect cube wherein God dwelt? What was it? Talk to me. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube and God dwelt there. What's happening? The building of God is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger from an altar and a tent to a tabernacle to a temple to a bigger temple and now it fills the universe. God has gotten His house and Revelation 21.10 says, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, God's goal is not to take you to heaven. It's to bring heaven to earth. It's to have His house on this earth. A Bethel, a dwelling place, a garden that's become a city, that's become a temple. And then we have the final words in Revelation 21. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And the dwelling of God is now with mankind. And in the end, God gets His house. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. An organic church, an authentic organic church, is a foretaste. It's a foregleam of the new Jerusalem. And in true organic church life, you and I will experience some of the glory that's to come. Because God literally dwells in His people. When they are built together, and let me tell you what's going on here, and this is the practical edge to all this. When I was a Christian, when I became a Christian, I was taught by many, many different denominations and movements that the whole reason why God didn't kill me and take me to heaven was so that I can share the gospel with other lost people and bring them to Christ. Now, if you have ever heard that, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, look around you. Look around you. Right? The only reason why you're living, why God didn't kill you and take you to heaven, is so that you can share Jesus with other lost souls. Okay? Now, to use the metaphor that we've been looking at, Here's what that message is. The reason why you exist is that God made you a living stone. You used to be a dead stone, right? He poured oil on you by His grace and made you a living stone. Your purpose is to find other dead stones, pour oil upon them, and make them living stones. So what God is after is many living stones on the planet. As many as possibly can be obtained. Right? Now, in some other, if you're not evangelical, then in the mainline churches, it's let's make the world a better place. (laughs) Right? Now, listen to me. Who is at the center of both of those messages? You. Me. Human beings. It's either God wants me to go to heaven so I can escape hell, I'm at the cell. All the arrows point to me. You know, it's about my saving my hide or someone else's hide. You know, human beings, I'm saying. Or it's about making my life easier. You know, in certain movements, it's salvation isn't the big thing. It's the blessing and healing, physical blessing, material blessing. So let's just step back and ask ourselves a question. 
Is it possible that God's highest intention, is it possible that the whole reason for creation was not to make dead stones living stones and to obtain as many living stones as possibly can be obtained? And I will answer and say, it's not only possible, but that is not God's intention. It's not His highest intention. It's not His eternal purpose. Because if the saving of lost souls was God's ultimate intention, then how do you explain the fact that human beings came into this earth not in need of salvation? I'm going to run that by again. If God's purpose for creation... If what provoked him to create was to save lost man, then how do you explain that man came into the earth, human beings came into the earth, not in need of salvation? Obviously, there was something else he wanted. And he's never let go of it. Never. He's still after it. And so what we have on the earth today are many living stones filling the earth. Many living stones worshiping God. Many living stones trying to get other dead stones to be living stones. Many living stones filing into buildings to listen to one living stone give a message that motivates them to try to get other stones to be living stones. And God is still homeless. He wants those living stones in every city to be built together to form a dwelling for Him. A dwelling place that is by Him, through Him, and to Him. He wants a house for Himself that the arrows would turn from you and me to Him. Now, that will mean that dead stones will become living stones. It will mean changing things in the physical order. It will mean His blessing. But brothers and sisters, that's like fruit falling off a tree. The intent is that He would have a home where He can lay His head. Where He can find rest. Where He can be free to be Himself. Where He can express Himself. Where He can bring the heavenlies to earth in a people, through a people. And so, brothers and sisters, here is my exhortation. You are in this room as a living stone. And maybe some of you are living in Egypt. And whether you realize it or not, you're building bricks for the wrong guy. And God's call to you is, come out. Come out and head to the land of Canaan, the new Eden, and go to a city called Jerusalem, the building site where I will build my house. And some of you here may be in Babylon, many living stones in Babylon, and whether you realize it or not, there's a possibility the Lord may be saying to you, come out. I will not build my house in Babylon. But head toward the building site in Canaan and be built together with other living stones so that I can have my house. And I know this without even having to ask. A lot of you are in the wilderness. 
Can I get an amen on that for somebody? You are in the wilderness and some of you, your bones are starting to bleach. Because you're in the desert. And here's my word to you. God will make a way out. But there's a real good chance it's going to cost you something. There's a real good chance it's going to cost you something. And you're going to have a choice. Price is too high. Or... I'm going to be a a person of the altar in the tent and I'm going to head to the building site no matter what it costs me. Now brothers and sisters, we're going to get more practical but you have got to see you have got to see that God has a burning intent from the beginning. It was to expand the mutual indwelling that He shares with His Son. Talking about the Father. He wants a house on the earth. A people through whom he can express his fullness, the fullness of Christ. This is what the church is. It's not a method, it's not a system, it's not a strategy, it's not a form. It's not about that. Forget that. It's a group of people who are learning together how to eat from a tree and drink from a river and allow gold, pearl, and precious stone to be formed into them so that they can be built together to form the house of a living God wherever they are. And so that in every city, someone can say, where's God? I'll tell you where God is. He's on this street. He meets in this house with these people. Or He's over here in this street. And multiple places. And I'm not just saying one place in a city. Don't hear me wrong. But Frank, isn't God in some of these other places that are not what you're describing? There is a big difference between God visiting and God dwelling. I have been in many, many churches, quote-unquote, that the opening prayer and the ending prayer was, God, give us a visitation. God, visit us. God, we welcome you to visit us this morning. And He does. He visits. But that's not home. You understand? He's not looking for an overnight stayover, you know? A lodging. I mean, He'll do that. And doesn't the Lord live in all of us? Yeah. But Paul said in Ephesians that Jesus Christ would make His home in you. Ephesians 3. Make His home. He can live in you, but not be at home there. You understand? We're talking about a dwelling. We're talking about the place where he can lay his head. There's a beautiful picture of this in in the Gospels. Jesus Christ was rejected everywhere he went. From the moment he came to this earth, he was rejected. He came to his own and his own received him not. His very birth, there was no place for him. All the doors were slammed in Bethlehem. So he was born in a manger where animals were fed. And then uh, when he was about two years old, he's being hunted like an animal. And all the little boys that were two years old were slaughtered if they were Jewish. He escaped. And he grows up and he becomes a man and comes into full manhood and he starts teaching in his hometown Nazareth. He's rejected by the people. Is this not the son of Joseph and Mary? This is the carpenter. (laughs) Who is this guy? We know him. You know? 
His own brothers and sisters rejected him. It says that in the scripture. They didn't believe who he said he was. The Samaritans rejected him when he went into the city, so much so that James and John wanted to bring fire down from heaven. You know, Lord, give us the power to call fire down from heaven so that they can shake and bake in Samaria. <laughs> because they rejected you. Sons of thunder. He's rejected in Jerusalem. So much so that he would not spend the night in Jerusalem. Except the night of his death. He's rejected in all quarters. There's only one place on the planet that receives him. Not as a visitor. Not as the guest of honor. But as head of the house. A little village called Bethany. A couple miles outside of Jerusalem. The home of Mary... Martha, Lazarus, and someone named Simon. And they received him. And every time he would go into Jerusalem during the day, he would retreat back to Bethany, where he was taken care of, where he was loved. Lazarus was his friend. He loved him. Every time you look at Mary of Bethany, and Jesus, she's on her knees. She's at his feet. He was worshipped. But not only worship, he was received. Martha received him into her home. It was home for him. It was the only place on earth that was home for him. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head except in Bethany. And there's one striking image where Jesus leaves Bethany and he's hungry. He looks at a fig tree and it has leaves on it, which indicates it has figs. There are no figs. It didn't produce food for him. He has a need. He's hungry. So he curses it. And on the way back the disciples say, hey, the fig tree you cursed it shriveled up and died. Many have said that the fig tree represents Judaism, the system of Judaism. It had leaves on it, but no figs. And then he goes to Bethany where he's fed. And you know, Bethany means house of figs. It's where his needs were met. It's where he was loved, received, and cared for. It was the only place he can call home on this earth. And brothers and sisters, God wants a Bethany in every town on this planet. A place where he can lay his head. Not a visitor, not a guest. A place where he can live and dwell. And that's my challenge to you. That's what this conference is about. That's what Organic Church is about. And if you've read any of my books, if you're not getting that vision, then uh, I have failed as a writer. It is about Him. By Him, through Him, and to Him. Remember the analogy I gave about vantage point? Here's where I'll end. We've looked at the house of God through different vantage points. That is God's eternal purpose, a house for Himself. If you just turn it a little bit and you look through a different lens, the house of God is also a bride. And you can trace the bride from Genesis 1 all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament to Revelation 21 and 22. The house is also a bride. And then if you look a little bit differently, just turn it a little bit further and look through a different lens, 
you will find God is after a family. The house of God, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and also God wants a body through which to express himself, the body of Christ. Those four images sum up his eternal timeless purpose. And in the book From Eternity to Here, which would make a wonderful Christmas gift to anyone. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. Um, I was being serious. Um, <laughs> Thanks for laughing again. Um, out of all my books, I would be honest with you here, I'll, I'll be serious. Out of all my books, if you had to pick one to give to someone, it would be from eternity to here. You would only want to give pagan Christianity to a select small group of people who have heart medicine readily available while they're reading the book because it's very controversial there's no mistake it was no accident that that's read okay the book's read um, Alan Hirsch said uh, it's a friend of mine he said if you drop it it might explode <laughs>